Welcome to Unfiltered, our newest program in our weekly Fixing Healthcare podcast series. Joining us is Dr. Jonathan Fisher, a cardiologist and esteemed leader in helping healthcare professionals to prevent and address burnout. For 25 minutes, he and Robbie will engage in unscripted and hard-hitting conversation about art, politics, entertainment, and much more. As nationally recognized physicians and healthcare policy experts, they'll apply the lessons they extract to medical practice. Then I'll pose a question for the two of them based on what I've heard. Robbie, why don't you kick it off? Hi, Jonathan. Welcome to today's episode of Unfiltered. Thanks, Robbie. It's great to be back. Can't wait for the conversation. In our last episode, we promised listeners that we'd explore ChatGPT and the field of generative AI as it pertains to healthcare. It's such a massive and complex area. It's hard to know where to begin. So maybe rather than tackling healthcare directly, let's start with music. I don't know if you heard all about Drake in the weekend, the AI created recording, Heart on My Sleeve, and it's something like a million downloads on day one. It wasn't completely written by AI, Ghostwriter 977 contributed, but it's not hard to imagine next generations, including the music, the words, and the emotion will come through generative AI. So let's assume a future experiment. Across a week, Drake in the weekend record a song, and let's call it GPT-6, also records a song. And now the two recordings are played for hundreds of thousands of Drake fans, as well as the experts in the music world. And they're all asked to decide which is the real Drake production, so-called modern Turing test. And let's hypothesize that in both the fans and the experts, the evaluators pick half of the time the real Drake song and half of the time they picked the AI-generated song as Drake's. What does that mean to you? It means that we have to think about the nature of creativity and, and what it means to be creative. And the biggest question that's coming up with this is what does it mean to be a human being? Because we, I attribute qualities like creativity to being human. And clearly that's not the case with chat GPT-4 and future generations. So. Uh, the other thought that I have about this is that I have no doubt that the populace is going to prefer the AI generated song. I predict that it will, because whereas Drake has a sense of his audience and what they like, he cannot compete with AI when it comes to gathering data in terms of likes and dislikes and preferences that many of the search algorithms are already connecting, uh, collecting. So I can imagine Ghostwriter designing an even more Drake-like song than J Drake can produce. What do you think? I think this line between what is man and machine is rapidly shrinking. When a machine can truly duplicate a human being, it's not there yet. We're gonna have to ask what makes people be so special Right now, I think we can say that man, and by that I mean man and woman, but just in the generic way, controls the machine and tells the machine what to do. But I can see a time when the machine will be more powerful. I heard that GPT-4 has between 100 billion and 200 billion connections. 
between the different pieces of data built into it, that the next version, GPT-5, will have a trillion, which exactly matches the human brain and how many connections we have between our axons and dendrites. And at that point, it's not hard to imagine, and maybe it won't be that generation, the one after when it's 2 trillion and 4 trillion and 6 trillion, that it will be undifferentiable from people. And I think that's going to raise a lot of questions. You know, people have said singularity is near, and this may be a time of singularity. It, it makes me think of the show Westworld, the HBO series, which, uh, if people don't know, is based on uh, creations, artificial intelligence-based robots that eventually uh, forget that they are robots and they become conscious and aware as if they're human beings. Um, and I see that kind of moving in that direction. The more I research artificial intelligence and the more I ask, well, what is intelligence in the first place? What is human intelligence? Before we look at the artifice of intelligence, I'm struck over and over again, Robbie, by the limitations of the human mind. On the one hand, the human mind has trillions of uh, neural connections and is capable of taking us to the moon and back and taking pictures of the edge of the universe. And on the other hand, it's only able to process about 50 bits of data per second, whereas uh, computers and, and AI, we're talking about orders and orders of magnitude beyond that. The other issue, Robbie, that I'm interested in your thoughts on are the differences between what we are consciously aware of as humans, which is the conversation we're having, the words that are coming out of our mouth, which represent a, a thousandth of what's happening in our subconscious mind that we're not aware of, and the inaccuracies and the biases and the distortions that we're each making. So I don't think it's a matter of becoming as smart as humans. I think we humans have enough of a challenge overcoming our own limitations. And you've seen this and reported in your books. We make so many mistakes because we think we know more and better than we actually do. Have you come across that? There's no question about that. I think we have to confront that. One of the things that's very, I'll call it frustrating to me, is how comfortable we are dismissing human error and how critical we are of technology. An example would be a self-driving car. If a car crashes into a person and kills an individual, we think the technology is totally flawed. But every year, 50,000 people die in traffic accidents, most of the time from human error. And yes, families think about it all the time. And mothers against drunk drivers think about it all the time. But for the most part, we don't pay that much attention to it. Now, let's take it into medicine. Uh, when I look at the mistakes that we make, and I'm not trying to say it's an individual or a system, we should just look at the mistakes that we made, 200,000 people dying every year from medical error. When we look at the number of people who have chronic diseases that could be managed far better, mm. and we just tolerate that we only control hypertension 50 to 60% of the time. We only screen for colon cancer. I don't mean with uh, colonoscopy. I mean with fit tests in people who are appropriate for it, without a family history, without a history of polyps. We just assume this is the best that it can be because that's how we perform today. And the kind of outrage that I see about technology when an error is found 
I'm just not seeing, and I think it actually harms patients. Let me shift that to a study that I saw in which they took emails and texts sent from patients and had doctors write responses and GPT-4 write responses, and they judged them both for clinical value and empathy. And as you probably saw the same study, you know, GPT-4 was picked as the better in both clinical quality and empathy by three-fourths of the evaluators. I mean, you are a expert around empathy. You write about it all the time. Uh, it's going to be part of your upcoming book. How do you see this data that says that a generative AI application can demonstrate empathy three times as often on the same messages, the same texts as doctors? I think there's a couple pieces here. The first piece is just to look at this particular set of data, which uh, if there are some caveats as we as we analyze it. One is that these are doctors who have no relationships with the patients who are anonymously uh, submitting these questions, which is very different than me or you in an exam room. When I've known a patient for 10 years, uh, I'll put myself against AI any day for the amount of empathy that I can stir up based on knowing the patient's history, the ins and outs, uh, and also the, the context of what's been going on in their life. But with all that aside, there are two aspects of empathy as I see it. One is what we can call the cognitive aspect or the calculating aspect. Uh, a, a guy named Voss who wrote about negotiations uh, with terrorists talks about uh, surgical or strategic empathy. So we know that we can create and generate empathy by paying attention to certain words, certain facial cues. We have AI that can now read micro expressions better than humans in many cases. So I have no doubt that we can do the analytical part of empathy. The, the question is, the, there's a second component of empathy, which is what's called affective or emotional empathy, which is what you or I are actually feeling in our bodies. Our hearts are quickening. We may perspire slightly. Uh, there may be a smile on our face, which then shifts our ability to perceive what's happening in front of us. So uh, we know that computers can't feel. That's the last holy grail. But I think they can take us about 90% of the way. One more thing that I'll say about empathy is I think doctors can learn a lot from AI. And I know that's a controversial subject. Um, I think we can learn a lot. There's, there's a lot of uh, skills of communication that many are not taught in medical school, which is how do I get a sense of not just the pain that you're feeling, Robbie, but how does that impact your running, let's say, or how does that impact your ability to uh, have fun with your family? So there's a deeper level that I've witnessed myself missing that basic level. So on the one hand, I think AI will help us as doctors and nurses become more empathic, at least in the cognitive aspects of it. And on the other hand, I think humans will have to be the overseers of the computers because we are attuned to the emotional shifts inside of our bodies that can raise it to another level. And, and we have to say, of course, an, a computer AI is gonna be perceived as more empathic than a physician who's rushed and who's gonna give an answer, as in that study, that's significantly shorter. 
the average was less than 20 to 30 words of an answer given by the physicians, whereas the AI has no problem spitting out 150 to 250 words in their answer. That mere fact alone is going to be perceived by the by the interpreters as taking more time, giving more thoughtfulness. So those are a couple of thoughts up front. Let's stay with that theme. And let me ask you, as we evaluate the place of artificial intelligence, particularly generative AI in medicine, should we look at the impact on the recipient, the patient, as the sole measure? Or is there something we need to build into our thinking and evaluation about the creator and whether the creator feels that emotion, I'll say authentically, or whether the creator is just good at meeting the needs of the patient and relieving the anxiety and having the person feel better and follow the advice and become healthier. Is it a solely at the recipient end, so-called the ends, or is it also at the generative side, the technology versus the physician providing it? I think we're asking a question. What I'm hearing is, are we going to get to a point where an AI-driven uh, robot that can manufacture all of the facial expressions and micro-expressions of a caregiver, can that AI-driven robot give the same level of care, if not more so, and have better outcomes in terms of patient compliance uh, and patient diagnosis and also more tailored treatment? And my current thinking, Robbie, is that uh, that piece that you asked about and what's felt on the inside of the caregiver, it may be rendered irrelevant if we have a close enough simulation uh, that, it, that, that it's a scalable solution to the problem that we have right now without all of the cognitive biases, racial biases, confirmation biases that we frail human physicians are so prone to. Uh, so those are my thoughts. Let me push a little harder because what I'm really asking is if I'm the doctor and you're the patient, then I bring a lot of my own issues into the exam room. And I may not be reading you as well as I otherwise might. Mm -hmm. And I might not have the ability to give you what you need to maximize your health. Mm -hmm. Looking totally as an outcome you mentioned before, in terms of your family, your running, whatever the pieces are going to be that we want to measure. I suspect we can train a generative AI to do that really well. And on the other hand, you could say, that's totally inauthentic. The AI doesn't really even care the least bit about you because it can't care about anything. How important is that going to be as we define the role of the doctor versus the role of the technology in the future? I think it's still going to be important. Uh, if you go back to the 1950s, the, the, the cruel and unusual experiments done on children where uh, the, the, the monkeys were, baby monkeys were exposed to grown-up mother monkeys. And there was two test groups, one with an actual mother who was providing her milk, but also the warmth and the touch and the fur. And in another cage, there was a, a metal monkey that was also covered with fur that also was giving milk to the monkey. And so this is in a way analogous. The question is what's the impact on the child or what's the impact of that therapeutic, uh, almost maternal connection between provider 
and the patient. And I think something is always going to be missing uh, in a non-human AI generated robot. Well, let me push again a little, a little harder. Let's assume going back to that experiment, a very classical experiment, I think Harlow's the one who did it, uh, that the uh, artificial monkey can be evolved so that it's always gonna provide warmth and comfort and it's going to do exactly what the little monkey requires. And the actual monkey does it sometimes and doesn't do it other times. Maybe they're distracted. Maybe they're looking at food or looking at competition. So what I'm, I'm hypothesizing the possibility. I mean, you said it before around the Drake song, that I could write a better song for the listener relative to Drake than Drake might be able to write him or herself as judged by the listener, not necessarily by the creator. I'm saying we could get to a point there, but the the question would be whether providing that empathy, but it's in a calculated way, it's a computer generating it rather than a sensate way. Hmm. How will we respond? Will we say, this is better, we should just do it? Health outcomes are superior, patients are happier, or hmm. are we gonna say, no, Medicine requires this intimate human to patient uh, interaction, the doctor patient relationship. And this is just wrong, even if the results are better. Yeah, I, I, I being fully um, honest here that uh, I think we have what's going to happen is uh, we will have these providers that are um, incredibly accurate simulations uh, eventually. It may be 10 or 20 or 30 years down the road. Um, and I think there's going to be a piece missing. And the only piece missing, I think, that you may be hitting on is that the patient will still know that there's something amiss. It's not a human. And there will be a, a slight bit of cynicism, maybe a longing for that deep tribal human connection that we've been wired with for millions of years. And at the same time, I think we will, as a society, come to accept some compromises, some compromises because of the trade-off in terms of convenience of the care that this future provider can give that current providers can't even give, let alone get into the office after you know, within a, a six to eight week wait list. So I think, I think weighing the two, we are going to have this conversation. Patients have to have this conversation now. And I think it's fascinating uh, understanding there will be this one trade-off, which is we know that it will not be a human that's caring for us. Is that okay with us? And that's not for me to decide. That's for, for the patients around the world. Let me take that to another level. You're a cardiologist. And one of the ideas that I've heard from physicians, particularly surgeons, is that, well, this technology can never replace us. It can never replace the operative individual. Maybe, maybe it can replace the physician who is trying to make a diagnosis and can bring in a lot of other information and uh, data from the literature, but the interventional people can't. Now, I am a surgeon and I've never done any type of interventional cardiology, but I'm assuming that the entire procedure is done off of a monitor you actually don't look inside to see anything happening. And because it's coming off of a monitor, you can, everything is recorded. 
And the amount of information, which is massive relative to human mind, is nothing for a modern-day computer or a future computer to do. And a generative AI could watch 10,000 of the best angioplasties done by the leading experts everywhere around the world with the fewest complications and the best outcomes and duplicate the amount of force used to advance the catheter or the particular catheter used. You have all the details about interventional cardiology. Let's assume the possibility that this technology in multiple generations, not what we have today, today's 2% of what's gonna exist into the future, but let's say 20 years from now, when it's a thousand times better, more powerful than the current version, how do you think patients are gonna feel or as a cardiologist? How would you feel about referring the patient to the generative AI rather than to one of your colleagues? So this is a fascinating question. And I've, I've talked to my surgical colleagues. I've talked to my invasive cardiologist colleagues. I'm a non-invasive cardiologist. So the last time I've done an invasive <laughs> coronary procedure was over 20 years ago. And still, uh, your points are completely valid. Um, I, I think any objection that you'll hear from a human operator, a surgeon, ultimately comes down to a, a fear of being replaced and, um, and, a, and a suggestion that, um, that we are inferior, despite all of our training and all of our accolades, to a, a mere machine. Um, having witnessed what machines can do in the field of cardiology, whether it's analyzing thousands of EKGs, based uh, comparing them against a database of hundreds of thousands, uh, reading them incredibly fast and more accurately in some cases than some cardiologists, or whether you're talking about uh, non-invasive CT coronary angiography. Uh, so the, the traditional uh, state of the art right now, Robbie, as you know, for detecting a, a blockage in the coronary artery without having to go in for a catheter procedure is a CT coronary angiogram. And we've believed for years that not only can those tests detect calcified plaque, but also now even subclinical or atheromatous soft plaque. It turns out that with new AI uh, algorithms and a, a technology, a couple of companies are developing this, we can detect the earliest signs of soft atheromatous plaque that are previously invisible to most radiologists who've been reading the CT coronary angiograms. Um, tie that in with a robotic technique, as you were describing, to that's that's aware of all of the things that can go wrong and have gone wrong. It's like you made reference last last time with Malcolm Gladwell talking about Tesla and the self-driving car and that one accident. It's still less likely than humans driving on the whole. So I would have to say I would be comfortable making that referral once these have been battle tested and proven. One last question, ChatGPT, really about humans. Is the differentiation of us from, let's say, animals, our rationality, or is it our emotion? And I ask that because whichever answer you give is going to have major implication for ChatGPT and how we view it. Yeah, I have to I say it's a bit of each. Uh, in terms of distinction between humans and animals, I'm pretty hesitant in, in pretending like I know the distinction. I know a lot of people like to make assumptions about what 
uh, their dog is thinking, but uh, I can't pretend to know exactly what my dog is or isn't thinking and how sentient they are or are not. And I certainly have witnessed examples uh, in the animal kingdom of behaviors that are more human, if you will, or humane than what we're seeing with shootings and other things in the, in the human kingdom. So uh, I'd have to say the question is what makes us uniquely human as the rest of the animal, as opposed to the rest of the animal kingdom. And I think it's, there's a cognitive piece to it and there's an empathy piece. Uh, I'm not smart enough to, to, to parse that out. What do you think? I don't know. I think, as I said, whichever, whichever way I answer it, I can justify the fact that we're going to have to think about machines in the future and technology in the future as somewhat human. Whether that's equal to human, below human, above human, I can't say because I can't see all the future generations of it. Scientists, science fiction has looked at this for decades, but I think that day is coming. The line is narrowing, and uh, we'll return to this conversation sometime in the future. But let me shift slightly. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about leadership because uh, on the fixing healthcare. A podcast that Jeremy and I do that's been our focus this season, and you were a guest on it. And we talked on that show about leadership from the outside looking in. What do we want in leaders and what should they do? But I want to ask you on Unfiltered, how does it feel to be a leader? Hmm. Uh, it's changed. Uh, so I have my own experience of how it feels to be a leader. And I've uh, spoken with hundreds, if not thousands of leaders to, and, and there's a spectrum of feelings, um, depending on comfort with the very notion of being a leader. So I, I consider myself an accidental leader. I, I didn't ask to become a leader in healthcare. It just sort of naturally evolved over time. And I realized that in order to become effective as a leader, I had to wear that mantle. And uh, I think maybe what you're getting at, though, is that I have noticed patterns that as individuals move higher up the, the traditional hierarchical structure of leadership, there's a loneliness that occurs. And I've seen this uh, many times. And I'm curious about whether you've witnessed that you know, in your role as CEO and president. And I think the loneliness has a, not, a lot of causes to it. Uh, some is that people around us are more hesitant to give us honest feedback. Uh, whether it's for political reasons or ambition reasons. And we lose this fluid um, back and forth of information and honest trust. And so it's, as they say, it's lonely at the top. Um, at, on the other hand, there's an incredible joy and pride and lightness that comes from being an effective leader. When you get that piece of feedback from someone says, I've never met you, but the program that you led or the initiative that you started it allowed me to spend more time with the patients that I care about, the more time with my family. So I think leaders, being a leader is one of the most amazing things we can do in our lives. I also think that it's an artificial distinction to say that unless you have an official title, you're not a leader. I think anyone who gets out of bed in the morning gets to lead themselves and lead themselves in the direction of emotional regulation and accomplishment and, and aspiration or lead themselves in a different direction. And so this, this wonderful journey of self-leadership. And then if you're lucky enough to have a close friend or a partner or a family, in a way, there is a mutuality, but there's also a leadership uh, that any father or mother or brother or sister uh, who is intentional about the way they live uh, will take that mantle and wear it as a leader. But what, what are your thoughts, Robbie? 
Jonathan, I, I think we've misinterpreted a little bit this notion of loneliness uh, in leadership and loneliness at the top. I think, at least maybe I'm basing it on my own experience, what leaders, good leaders have is a tremendous fear of making a mistake that won't just impact themselves, but impact you know, 10, 10,000, 10 million people, depending upon the size of the organization. And invariably, they make a mistake, not necessarily one that is cataclysmal in that way. And the pain they feel that they've really let people down, I think it's that complex emotion that makes their days difficult, their, their decisions uh, painful to make, and the consequences of error. And one of the things I've recently thought about or wondered about, and I'll ask you about, is that fear of mistake and the same pain, the same one that clinicians feel when they, when they provide care and they're not really quite sure what to do or when they experience a complication? I, I would say, I hear what you're saying that, uh that leaders feel that I, I refer to it as a mantle of responsibility. It can be a tremendous weight. Um, I think it depends on how empathic and compassionate the leader is. And, I, and I've seen a spectrum. And so in your experience, Robbie, you're a deeply empathic, caring person. It's part of who you are. Uh, I know that, that we both have met leaders who maybe are stronger in other domains let's say, the analytical, the financial, uh, and they don't have the whole package together. So if we're talking strictly about uh, organizational leaders who have a deep commitment to the well-being in all aspects of every single employee, I absolutely think it's like a, a physician who is meeting a patient and has to be compassionate, not just for the heart or for uh, the abdomen, but for all aspects of a human being. I, I think there's very little distinction there of the responsibility that we take. Saying that, I'll, I'll tell you in my own experience, the pressure was almost too much to be a leader in the office uh, when patients would die if I would make a mistake. And fortunately, I've been uh, neurotic enough, careful enough, analytical enough, whatever it is, that it's been a strength uh, to help me prevent errors. But at the same time, it's been almost a plague uh, with my own anxiety and learning that that can disable my cognitive function. So there's this fine balance, I think, Robbie, in being a leader between being um, settled and calm uh, and steady, but also being aware of the magnitude of responsibility if we make an error. And that's where recognizing the different, the distinction, the line between what I'm responsible for and what is uh, what is occurring because of other forces, I think that's a line that we have to constantly look at so that we don't misattribute mistakes to ourselves and end up spiraling downward uh, in that in that not just loneliness, but also self-doubt and self-criticism that you were alluding to. As you said, you've dealt and interacted with hundreds, thousands of physicians and leaders. In your experience, how do they cope with their fears, their hopes and their failures? <laughs> Drinking. <laughs> uh, you know, it's not just my experience, Robbie. If you look at Medscape's uh, data from last year, uh, if you look at physicians from 29 subspecialties, around 9,000 of them, 
there really is a, a, a not insignificant amount that cope with stress with mal what we call maladaptive behaviors, which could be addictions of various kinds. Um, and I think it, it's probably similar um, among leaders as well. And, and at the same time, part of the work that I do and the work that you're doing is to help offer skills for coping for leaders. And there's a whole industry that supports leadership in this country and around the world, leadership development, um, where it's about learning those skills that maybe we weren't taught in business school, the hard skills of when the weight of the world feels like it's on my shoulders, how do I steady my heartbeat, steady my pulse so I can hold the scalpel still, even when things are going wrong? Uh, I think those are skills that are absolutely teachable for, for leaders so we can shift from the more maladaptive coping strategies to the healthier ones, like going for a run or going to the gym or eating healthy food or sleeping well, or not just not avoiding interactions with loved ones if you're feeling stressed, but leaning in because that deep interaction is what nurtures excellent leaders. My sense is at both the leadership level and the clinician level, much of what we do is denial. And I think as you're pointing out, the line between effective denial, that which allows us to perform well, and excessive denial, I think, is uh, a line that we have to look at more closely. And one of the fears that I have is that much of burnout, lack of purpose, comes out of that denial, and that figuring out how to pull the pieces apart without creating a bigger problem is difficult and complex, but until we do it, we're not going to reach resolution. Mm. I agree. I think it's it's well said. That's an interesting distinction between the different forms of denial. Uh, I think it, it only becomes pathological, that denial for leaders or physicians, when when we never take the time to slow down, to step away from our role, and to look back and see whether we're We've got some deeper pain, some deeper trouble, some deeper unhappiness that we've just we're covering over by running through our day to day actions and tasks. And we are just doing all the time and we've lost connection with our our beingness of, of a being a human being. So um, that's that's part of the fun of helping other leaders, I find, is to help because people who choose generally to, to lead in healthcare are by and large really caring people, wonderful, caring people who uh, who are courageous enough to to dare to set policy for hundreds of thousands or even millions of people. And it's just very rewarding to help help leaders help themselves so that they can become even more effective, despite all the pressures you were alluding to. I'm sure we'll talk more about this in future episodes, because I think that we have to come up with a better means than we have today. But let me turn it over to Jeremy now to pose a question for us based upon our conversation. So on social media, you hear people talking about and even sometimes see advertisements for apps offering something similar to ChatGPT, but it is a friend or girlfriend or boyfriend. I'm sure like ChatGPT, this technology will improve in the coming years. Uh, what are your thoughts on these sorts of softwares from a healthcare, public health and mental health standpoint? Uh, on one hand, it could give people who struggle with loneliness or interacting with others some sort of a feeling of connection. 
Uh, but on the other hand, it could make lonely people less likely to seek out true human interaction. Or if it's one of those girlfriend AI apps, it could give uh, men who have had not much real interaction with women in real life unrealistic uh, personality expectations or even dangerous sexual expectations of women when they do try to date in person. Uh, what are your thoughts on these kinds of apps and uh, both the good and bad that it could do for lonely and socially isolated people who struggle to fit in? So, Jeremy, I, I love that question. Uh, my first response is we need these apps now uh, as, as, a, as a, a holding measure, because, as you know, this week, the Surgeon General released a report, an advisory on the crisis of loneliness, uh, not simply for its emotional health toll, but specifically because it raises the rates of heart attack and stroke and chronic medical conditions and compliance. And so there really is an epidemic of loneliness that needs to be addressed. The solution is not simply to say, go out and join a club. Uh, there are so many complex factors that lead to loneliness from uh, our upbringing, uh, our personality type, whether we're introverts, extroverts, shy or not shy, and then to what community we live in. Do we have access to other people? Are we in a rural neighborhood? So I do think because of the, the nature of the problem of isolation and disconnection in our modern world, these apps have a role. With that being said, I also have this image of, in my mind of Ready Player One, where if you haven't seen it, uh, the premise is that there is a future world, a metaverse, which isn't that far off from our current reality, where teenagers are living in the virtual reality world uh, in an avatar form. And in that form, there are suits and haptic feedback, which can simulate sexual activity, social interactions, uh, even using drugs and alcohol. Um, so the question is, uh, when does it become pathological? When does it separate us more than it unites us to other people? So my simple answer would be used uh, in a pinch for those who need it as a stepping stone to real human interaction. I'm absolutely in favor. There's a there's a whole tech, there's a whole industry now around mental health technologies and apps supported by generative AI, which have an incredibly important role because there's a crisis of mental health in this country. And at the same time, it will not substitute for going outside with a friend and walking around the pond with your dogs. Robbie, what do you think? I concur with you completely, Jonathan. There was a movie called Her, where this individual who had quite a bit of difficulty with social connections, had a relationship with a AI application, carried his phone around, showed to this other individual where he was and the beauty of the morning and the evening and the sunset and all the different parts that were there. But at the end, he realizes that she has 10,000 boyfriends and doesn't really care that much about him. So the, I, I, I agree with you that I think this is going to be an important tool. I think we've talked this entire time that we're entering to a new phase, that the line between machine and people is getting narrower. And we are going to have to, on one hand, keep our minds wide open and the other time recognize the potentiality that unintended consequences could actually make things worse not better. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. Please follow Fixing Healthcare on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, your favorite podcast app. 
If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. If you want more information on a broad range of healthcare topics, you can visit Robbie's website at robertperlmd.com and visit our website at fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at FixingHC Podcast. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare's newest series, Unfiltered, with Dr. Robert Pearl, Jeremy Corr, and Dr. Jonathan Fisher. Have a great day.